Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dion Gray. I'm a good girl. I don't, I don't put things into vaginas. That's it's a secret space. But then I looked at my boyfriend and said, but you know how to put things into vaginas. <laughs> now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is chris hazelton's boogaloo seven behind me now and this is the very first episode of risk for 2019 holy cow a new year has begun although while i'm saying this it is before christmas i i am currently in Thailand. Well, I'm trying to make sense of that. Okay, I'm recording this at home in Bedford Stuyve, Brooklyn. But while you're hearing this, I am in Thailand eating booty. It doesn't matter. If time is a flat circle, it's best to assume that's what I'm up to pretty much any old time. Now, we're calling this week's episode Community. Stories about what inspires us to look out for one another or fail to. In a little bit, we're going to hear from someone who is like a family member of ours here at Risk, Ray Christian. But before that, a story that was shared the last time we did Risk in Baltimore. Dion Gray does a lot of public speaking. In fact, you can find her at DionGray.com. But she has rarely spoken as intimately and personally as she did right here here she is now with a story we call motherland so several years ago i moved to the united states from my tiny island home to study in the United States. It was a dream come true. I had wanted to study for a long time, but I didn't have any money and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then finally I'd gotten a full scholarship to study here in Maryland, so I was thrilled. I was 24 and I came from a very, very sheltered background. Sin and hell were like catchphrases. Everything you did was like, sin, hell, sin, hell, sin, hell. (laughs) So as a 24 year old, very sheltered person, I was also a virgin. Like, I imagined that the minute I came, these two little demons would just jump out from behind the bed and just drag my naked ass off to hell. I was that scared. (laughs) So naturally, when I moved to the United States, I saw all these people on campus, this campus hellscape, with people doing all these really bad things, like smoking and drinking. And I thought, well, how are the demons not dragging them off to hell? What's up with me? But I was really scared and I was very, very concerned about keeping the reputation that I had had. I was this beloved daughter and friend who left her island home to get an education and I was very proud of that. And so a year into my first year of college, I still hadn't broken any rules because I wanted to be a really good girl. And then one day I was in the cafeteria and I made eye contact with this guy who was also from where where I was originally from. And he kind of was like, (laughs) But I had known him from around because he was popular for smoking weed with all the guys. And I was like, there's no way I am going to be seen with that guy. No matter how many sparks there are between us, it's not going to happen. Not me. But then at the end of my freshman year, I broke a rule. I went to a party (laughs) in a club (laughs) 
with smoking and drinking and loud music and dancing and grinding. And the next thing you know, I am grinding on the weed guy. <laughs> the same weed guy. And I thought, oh, this feels so good, but so wrong. How can this happen? <laughs> so we started dating. <laughs> and then we started having sex. When we started having sex, I was like, okay, now I'm going to hell. But also, I'm going to get pregnant every time I have sex. God is going to punish me by making me pregnant. So I had a stack of pregnancy tests just laid up in my dorm room. Every time, every time my period was due, I would panic. And as a safety precaution, I would take a pregnancy test just to make sure that I was okay. It was fine. One day, I was three days late. And I figured... It's no problem. It's the end of this semester. Finals are on. Um, you know, it's probably just stress-related. But because I had all these pregnancy tests that I had bought in, um, at Costco, I decided that <laughs> I was going to take one just to reassure myself. And this was back in the day when they didn't have those, like, digital tests. It was those tests with, like, one line and then a second line, and the second line is kind of fuzzy, and you never know what's going on. And so I took the pregnancy test, and the first line appeared, as it should. And then a second very faint line kind of sort of appeared. And I thought to myself, well, am I kind of pregnant? Because <laughs> you can't really be kind of pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. So I decided I would go to the health center just to be sure. I got to the health center and the nurse made me pee in a cup and she did everything. And then she came back into the room and she said, congratulations, you're pregnant. And even though she said congratulations, the look in her eyes said to me, oh God, you're pregnant and you're going to hell. <laughs> Your mother is going to be so disappointed in you. And then she gave me some brochures about what I can do about pregnancy, and she just kind of sent me on my way. I was shell-shocked. I was numb. I was a good girl. This could not happen to me. The first thing I did was that I found my weed guy boyfriend, and I broke the news to him, and the words that blurted out of his mouth were... I, I don't want it. And I don't blame him. We were both very young. We had just started college. I didn't want it. I was scared. I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't claim the virgin birth story because Mary already took that like 2,000 years ago. <laughs> so there was no other excuse for me to explain how I had gotten knocked up. So we decided that we were going to fix the situation because at the time I was a very methodical kind of person that you gave me a problem and I would fix it. That's what I was meant to do. And we decided that we were going to fix this. I remember I decided that I would go to see my therapist at the time and explain what was going on and really talk things through to make sure that I was making the right decision. And as I was walking across campus, it was a cold November afternoon. There was hardly anybody around. And the coldness that I felt in the air was kind of how I felt on the inside as well. I just felt cold and numb. But just before I entered into the counseling center, I had this spark of awe and amazement. And I thought, wow, there is life growing inside of me. Me. There is a cluster of unborn cells waiting to call me mother. And I knew in that moment that it was going to be a boy. I just knew it. I don't know how. I mean, I was six weeks pregnant. There was no way of knowing, but I just knew it was going to be a boy. But as I stepped into the counseling center, the fear, the numbness returned, the how am I going to tell anyone, the shame returned that I had done this thing, this horrible thing. I had sinned. And I decided after the therapy session that I was going to fix this. I was definitely going to fix this. The next day at the abortion clinic, I was still numb. I was just like, this has to happen and I need to do something about it. The doctor injected me with some medication and then he gave me two small white pills and he said, in seven days, insert these pills into your vagina and that'll begin the abortion process. So I said, okay, because I wanted to make sure that I followed all of the rules. The thing was, that in seven days, I was due on a flight back home for Christmas with my boyfriend. 
and I figured, well, it's going to be fine. By the time I get back into, into my home, I'd be able to have enough time to go to the bathroom and do what I needed to do. And I figured everything would be fine. But when we got to the airport, the flight was delayed by several hours, which meant that I wasn't going to be home until the eighth day. So I panicked. I mean, what do you do? You're at the airport, and you have to, in, to, do, to do this thing, otherwise the process is not going to work. So my boyfriend and I concocted a plan. I said, well, you know, what are we going to do? Is this a sign? Yeah, it was a sign that I was about to do this thing right here in the airport. There was no question about it. But then the question became, well, how am I going to do this? Because I don't go down there. Like, I'm a good girl. I don't, I don't put things into vaginas. That's, it's a secret space. But then I looked at my boyfriend and said, but you know how to put things into vaginas. <laughs> so you have to do it. And then the question became, well, where are we going to do this? So we concocted a plan that I would go into the ladies' restroom. I would take my pants and underwear off. I would find a handicap stall. Well, I would find the handicap stall and then take my clothes off. <laughs> and then he would come in quickly without anyone looking, and he would insert the pills on my behalf. And that's what we did. I was on a cold, nasty, filthy airport restroom ground. And that's where the pills of death were inserted. And that's when it began. Three hours later, on the flight, I felt as if someone had reached their hands up inside of me and just started pulling and tugging at everything that lived inside of me. By the time I got home, I had bled through my underwear, my clothing. I went to the bathroom and there were huge brown clumps of jello just spilling out of me. For 10 days, I bled through everything. A shower looks like a crime scene. And all this time, it was a secret. I couldn't tell anyone. I was too ashamed of what I had done. I had killed someone. I was a murderer and I was no longer a virgin. After the 10 days were over and I managed to keep my cool, Christmas break was over, I went back to college and I figured that was the end of that. It's fine. But I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop getting over what I had done. This big secret, this shame that I was carrying around with me. I was still this good girl and I had kind of really just screwed things up. And eventually, I was encouraged to tell my mother about it because she's my mother. Like, why wouldn't you tell your mother? She was back home in the other country, and I decided I would tell her. Now, this was back in the day when phone calls were really expensive, like international phone calls. So there was Hotmail Messenger. That's how we talked. So I found her on Hotmail Messenger one day, and I told her what had happened. And back then, we didn't have the kind of relationship that we have now, which is very close and warm. So her response was not what I had hoped. She just said something along the lines of, well... No more hanky-panky from here on out, right? <laughs> and just make sure to just not do that ever again. That was pretty much what she said. And it didn't help. It didn't make me feel like it was okay, that I was forgiven. I couldn't forgive myself. And so that shame and that secrecy led to years and years of depression. I just couldn't shake what I had done. I had lost my son. That's what it felt like to me. And even after Weed Guy and I broke up, and there was nothing that could keep us together for a lifetime, and I was really glad about that. And even after I started this really fabulous, single, kid-free life where I can travel everywhere, I can take an uninterrupted shit, I can walk around <laughs> naked in my apartment anytime I want. Even after I met the love of my life, and he came with his own kid and didn't want any more. And even after my spirituality and my understanding of God had evolved, I still couldn't shake this loss that I felt over losing my son. And one day I decided I couldn't go on like this. I couldn't do this anymore. This was just too horrible. And I decided that I would look into sponsoring a child in an underdeveloped country. And so I did some research and I found a program that offered something like that. And that's when I found Abdul. 
At the time, Abdul was living in Kenya and he was eight years old. And I felt that it was pretty significant, the eight years old, because by that time, had I not aborted that baby, he would have been eight years old. And he was a boy. So I figured this is great. And I started sending money every month, and I learned that the money that I sent would pay for his education, which was also really important to me because I had given up on the opportunity to be a mother because I chose to study and I wanted to get my education instead. And over the years, Abdul and I have exchanged letters and photos, and I've come to enjoy the relationship that we have. And he's a lot like me. Today, he's 15 years old. And I am not ashamed anymore. Abdul is very much in love with reading and dancing, just like me, because you remember that grinding story? Yeah. <laughs> he is really passionate about helping others. He cleans the homes of the elderly in his village. He is Muslim, but he celebrates the holidays of his Christian friends, so there's a whole lot of like religious tolerance going on there, just like me. And every time he writes me, he always thanks me for taking care of him. And then he signs a letter, your son, Abdul. And I'm so proud of him. In fact, any mother would be proud. Thank you. The summer of 1972 was one of the hottest summers on record in Richmond. More than two straight weeks of 95 degree heat. So when the crowd formed around the body, everyone agreed it was probably the heat that killed that woman. I first saw her during the winter time when she was pleading to be let in the back door by a neighbor at Mr. Woodson's house. She cried and she begged to be let in. She looked a bit younger than my mama, who was around 45 at the time, so maybe she was around 30 years old. Her dress seemed a bit small, but clean. She was skinny and her exposed skin on her hands and her face and her legs were dirty. And her medium-sized afro seemed poorly maintained for the times. And she was certainly not dressed for the cold day outside. She continued to beg and plead, Please, please let me in, Woodsy. I'm going to freeze to death, please. I promise I'll be good. I ran away from the window as quick as I could. I wanted to tell my mama what I was seeing out there in the backyard. But when I came back to the window, she was gone. Now, Mr. Woodson was a man that was about six foot tall, medium complexion, a thin pencil mustache, very muscular and athletic in his build. A man that could make you feel cold and chilly when he just stared at you. He never spoke. He just stared. Seemed like his only interest in the world was trying to keep people off his porch. Especially kids. No neighbors, no solicitors. If you came near his porch, he would come outside and tell you to go away. You absolutely couldn't go in his backyard. You never hardly saw people coming to his house. You definitely never seen anybody leave. In fact, the only person ever was that lady. The next time I remember seeing that lady was at the start of the summer. One of the hottest summers ever. So my mama had asked me to remove this nail that we had holding the window shut. Keep people from robbing us and open that window up so it could get air coming from the alley. And I removed that nail, and I was finally able to open up that window, and I could look right across the alley right into Mr. Woodson's house. 
And what I saw over there was that lady. And that lady, she was naked. And she was skinny. And on a dog leash. And drinking from a bowl. She looked like a skeleton. With skin pulled over it. And I had never seen a naked woman that looked like that before. Well, actually, I had never seen a naked woman before. I had no sense in looking at her that she could be any other way. She didn't move like a naked person. I thought in my mind would. She didn't show any kind of shame or concern of being seen or just being uncomfortable with no clothes on. Wasn't sexual or exciting to see her. She seemed kind of natural in her movements, like a pet, an animal. But I knew that she didn't seem to be well kept. I guess she was thirsty. I remember I told my friend Jasper, I seen that lady on a leash drinking water from a bowl. And he said, maybe he's keeping her as a pet. And I heard people say that. Now, there was talk around the neighborhood that Mr. Woodson was keeping a woman in his house and in his backyard like a pet. And I heard the paper boy say the same thing. And the people who lived across the street talked about it. And some teenagers in the neighborhood also said they had seen it. Now, I myself kept animals of all sorts. Dogs, cats, and pigeons, and... They seemed a lot better cared for than her. I wondered to myself, how does he actually care for the woman, this lady? Does he look after her in a way I would look at my own pets? Does he take the lady outside to use the bathroom? Does she have fleas and ticks? Does she sleep mostly outside? Or does she sleep on the floor? But this would have been one of the many unverified stories of strangeness about people we didn't really know much about in the neighborhood that went on all the time. I recall that probably the next time I saw the lady, she was in an alley, naked, and crying. I just walked up on her and it shocked me and I was going to run away and go in the other direction. And she said, no, 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 please, 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 don't tell Woodsy, please, 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 don't tell Woodsy. I, I'm just trying to get something to eat. He'll be mad. He'll kill me if, if, if he found out. And I said, okay. And she's telling me this. Like, to a kid. People often talked about her being chained in the backyard. But still, nobody acted. I mean, it was a hot summer and people were distracted by the weather and their everyday concerns. But people most often collectively said, people have the right to live or die any way they want to. But I recall one night, it was so, so hot. It was hard to sleep. Everybody in the house, including me, my mom and my stepdaddy, were getting up and down to get water. You could hardly even just breathe. It was just so hot and humid outside. And then you could hear the sound of banging and hitting coming from the alley between our house and Mr. Woodson's house. It was hard not to focus your attention on it. But it was so hot outside that the heat had warped the door in such a way that it was difficult to see outside the crack into the alleyway. And the sweat was pouring down my face and got into my eyes and I could barely see the shadowy figures in the alley. Two bodies, these forms moving and wrestling back and forth in the alley. And I could hear this choking and gurgling, hitting, thumping, this grotesque sound of a body trying to say, I want to live. Then I heard 
Mr. Woodson's voice say, Shut up, bitch. More thumping, more squealing, more choking sounds. And then silence. My mom and my stepdaddy immediately said, We need to go outside. They wanted me to stay in the house, maybe, and get in the bed, but they didn't stop me from walking out with them. We walked outside the house and out front. All of our neighbors seemed to be out there. Everybody was out there. They couldn't help but be awakened by the thumping, the sounds. We get outside, and right in front of the house is the lady. She's laying right in front of the house, motionless. People are starting to look at her and speak. Who's she? Who she is? Who that? Who that is? Is that that lady? Yeah, that's that lady. Who live up over there? Yeah, live up over there. You reckon she was sick? Maybe she was sick. No, I don't think she was sick. What you think happened to her? I don't know what happened to her. You think it was the heat? No, I don't think it was the heat. Should we touch her? No, don't touch her. Who else know her? We don't know her. Are we going to call somebody? Maybe we shouldn't call nobody. And in the time of being outside and the conversations going back and forth, her body went from being loose to stiff again, to loose. People were saying, don't touch her. Don't roll her over. What do you think happened to her? And no one considered calling the police. I mean, very few of us had phones at all in the neighborhood. and Police often arrive only to search for criminals among the gathered crowd. Anybody who had long discussions with the police was often looked on with suspicion. And honestly, the mysterious death of a black person in my community was not uncommon. The police rarely have ever conducted a thorough crime scene investigation like on TV. A person's personal worth was the determining factor on whether or not the police were going to do anything. Somebody that was so unlikely to be valued would never become a drain on investigative manpower. So I don't know if it was the heat that killed that lady or the cold indifference of a community of people who believe that people have the right to live or die any way they want to.
This is Risk. This is Gary Jules and Michael Andrews behind me now. And we just heard from Ray Christian. Uh, That story was edited by John LaSala. You know, if you've never heard Ray's own podcast, What's Ray Saying? Man, you really have to check it out. There's just such a rich range of wisdom and experience. Uh, Ray will talk about history. He'll walk you through the history of various movements. He'll talk about, you know, more stories from his own life. We just can't get enough of Ray, and that's why you got to check out his podcast, What's Ray Saying? Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from the last Risk show that we did in Denver, Colorado. This is Eric McNeil, who is a writer and a teacher. He's currently shopping around a manuscript uh, he's just written called Ratoon. And here he is now with a story we call Let Me Tell You a Story. I've been a math teacher for 35 years. And about 20 years ago, it was decided that all freshmen would take algebra. Some of my former students are here. So suddenly I had these freshmen dragging their butt into my math class and they sit down and the worst of them just put their head down and nothing I can say or do would get them to lift it off their desk. So I'm teaching this lesson one day and there's this kid, he just looks like an abandoned puppy and there's something about him that's just tugging at my heart and I'm, I'm teaching this lesson and I find that I'm just kind of an autopilot, I'm just saying the words. I can't stop thinking about him and then suddenly... I just blurt out, hey, did anybody here get called stupid on the way out the door this morning on their way to school? And he sits right up. And he looks at me with this, like, this look of hope on his face. And I got nothing. And when he realizes that, he puts his head down. And I never really connect with that kid. He ends up failing. But at that point, almost half of my class, my freshman classes were failing. So it's very depressing, and I'm trying to figure things out, but there's something about that kid that just haunts me. And as I think about him and I think about what I said, I realized I knew exactly why I said what I said, because that kid reminded me of me. And so I decided that I would figure out a way to not just get them to lift their head up off their desk, but to like keep their attention. So now if you came into my class on the first day of school, the first thing you would hear is, do you guys want to hear a story? And my kids all look at me with that same look of hope. I think it's the hope of, you mean we don't have to do any math? (laughs) And I say, so you ready? And I know I have their attention like I will never have when I teach algebra. And I say, well, uh, my mom divorced my birth father before I was a year old. And my grandma told me that her second husband, well, She was married to him. I would show up to her house covered in bruises. And my mom's third husband was a good guy when he was sober. But when he would get drunk, bad things would happen. And one time he came home and accused my mom of cheating on him. And I had to cover my little brother's and sister's eyes so they wouldn't have to watch him trying to rape her in front of us. What I don't tell my students is that my only real memory of my mom's voice is her screaming, as he's trying to rip her pants off, not in front of the kids, not in front of the kids. And I go on and tell my students, by the time I'm in my mid-20s, my mom is killed in a car accident, and the lawyer she works for gets my brother, my sister, and I each $65,000. And it only takes about a year for my brother and sister to spend it all on drugs. My sister gets sucked into meth. There's a drug bust at the funeral service. And I take my 65000 and I go to Harvard. 
And I get there, and I look around, and I go, man, there has been a mistake. These people look so smart. And the dean walks up to the microphone and says, welcome to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and no, there's been no mistake. You're all supposed to be here. And I start laughing, and everybody's laughing, and I look around, and I go, oh, my gosh. All of us. We're our own worst enemies, full of self-doubt. And I look at my students, and I say, I'm going to prove that right now. When you guys heard I went to Harvard, how many of you thought, then what are you doing here with us? And there's always kids in every class that slowly raise their hands. And a lot of them look like that abandoned puppy. And I look him in the eye and I say, but don't you deserve the best? I said, I grew up in a trailer park in Farmington, New Mexico, and I got to go to Harvard. Imagine what you could do. I want you to know that I choose these stories and how much I tell very deliberately. Because over the years, I found that to really get the attention of all my students, I have to go that extreme anymore. So, the second day is when the fun starts now. And about five years ago, this girl walks in the door on the second day. She's kind of short, short hair, stubborn as hell, sits down at a desk, and as soon as I start saying fractions and integers and equations, she goes comatose. And I'm not going to give up that easily, so I start bugging her. And I bug her, you know, come on, pick up a pencil, just try. And every time she lifts up her face to look at me, the look on her face just screams out, why are you bothering with me? It's hopeless. And I have to be honest with you, that look on her face takes me back into the pain of my childhood. I'm there. And it's really tempting to then push these kids away to just avoid that pain. But I now know that I can't get where I want to go unless I plunge back into that darkness. And so I keep going. And after a couple of days of me bugging her, she finally tells me exactly how she feels. Oh, mister, you make me so mad. When I get into this place with them, I forget, I I have no skills. I'm back into that emotional part of my brain And I just say whatever comes out sometimes. And I said, oh, yeah, by the way, you guys, I should tell you, I have a superpower. I have the ability to make people feel things. It's incredible. I just made Michelle mad. (laughs) And she didn't think it was funny. (laughs) She got so pissed. She storms out of the room. And I'm like, oh, crap. I've blown it again. But as soon as she left the room, she called her dad. And her dad called the principal. The principal emails me saying, call the dad. And I call the dad. And before I can say anything, he starts telling me stories. He goes, look, man, I got sole custody. There's a restraining order against her mom. And her older sister's bugging her to make contact with the mom anyway. And all he's doing is he's filling in the details. I could have read all of that in the way she looked. So I said, look, man, I'm sorry. Would you call her and have her come see me? And within minutes of hanging up the phone, she walks back in the room. It's empty. She sits down at a desk and she says, my therapist told me to tell people when they make me mad. <laughs> God, She's already played the dad card and the administrator card, and now she pulls out this therapist card. <laughs> and I just wasn't even thinking. I just go, Pfft. Well, my therapist told me I get to decide how I feel that nobody can make me mad. Isn't that crazy? It's like our our two therapists are getting like into a fight over this, right? (laughs) And she just stares at me. And it gets real quiet. And she says, my therapist told me to tell people when I'm mad. And I said, cool. Because if you do that, then maybe I can figure out a way how you can learn in spite of your anger. Will you forgive me for being such a smart ass and give me another chance? And she nods. And as she's leaving, I'm going, man, this kid is wicked smart. And I know, I'm telling you right now, that story on the first day, that's what bought me that phone call. That's what bought me that second chance. But old habits are hard to break. She was absent a lot. When she showed up, she'd try sometimes, and she'd get nothing right. So she fails first semester. But along the way, she hears a story about why I've never been drunk or high, about getting beat up for being white, 
and then second semester, or first semester, and she fails. She shows up after winter break, and she's got big news. She says, look, I want to be called Michael, and I want you to change the pronoun, too. And I, I do the best I can, but like I slip, I'll slip and say Michelle, or I'll say she. And I cringe, and I apologize, and I say, you know, forgive me, and she's like, yeah. He's like, yeah. But uh, this stuff just keeps going on. It's a battle every day. He shows up. It's like, come on, man, take off the headphones. Just put away the phone. Let's go. And it's this battle going on, and I, it, I realize what's happening. This is his way of making sure I pay attention to him every day. So I'm wearing out, and I say, come on out in the hallway. And I get him out in the hallway, and I say, look, man, I can tell you're tired of me bugging you. Would you like me to give up and leave you alone? And his eyes start to tear up. And it's all I can do to keep my own eyes from tearing up. It hurts so much to see him in so much pain. And I realize how much alike Michael and I are. Because I wouldn't want anybody to give up on me either. And so I say, look, I can tell you want me to bug you. So I'm going to keep bugging you, okay? And he nods. But it was weird because every time I bug him, he'd just glare at me out of habit. And then I'd kind of smile and he'd smile because he'd remember, oh yeah, I gave you permission to bug me. (laughs) And it's starting to work. He's starting to get stuff right. And here's another story about the kid that brings a gun to school to shoot me. And then there's another story that comes up. And a couple of years ago, it got teed up really nicely in my fifth period after lunch class from hell. More than 30 kids. Now Colorado's legalized marijuana. So they're straggling in 10, 15 minutes late. And those late ones are the ones that are the most high. And they walk in, and I'm, I'm getting through this lesson. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And this kid goes, Miss McNeil, come on. When are we going to ever use this in real life? And I just go nuclear. I look at him, and I go, you guys know I love you, right? <laughs> and they go nuts. This kid goes, you can't say that, man. And this other kid goes, dude, you sound like a creeper. But this has gotten the attention of this one girl over here, and she has lifted her head up. And this girl that has lifted her head up is like a glass that has been broken, and somebody's carefully glued it back together. And when they get done with the last piece, they slowly move their hands away to see if it stays in one piece. And that's who's raising her hand. And she says, Mr. McNeil, when I hear that word at my house, that's when bad things start to happen. And I realize it's time for my last story. But when I was 12, my mom made a big mistake. She wanted to know what I thought about her marrying this guy named Julian. This would be her fourth husband. And the mistake wasn't asking me. The mistake was being surprised when I said no. And it would have been hell no, but all I had is, Mom, I just got a bad feeling about this guy. And the first thing he does, he moves us from Farmington, New Mexico, to Taos, New Mexico, where I discover I'm one of about 30 gringos in my school, and I discover there's something wrong with my fellow gringos. They were, like, weird. They'd all grown up there, and they acted like dogs that had been beaten their whole lives, walking around with their tails between their legs. So Julia moves us from there to Phoenix the next year, and I wake up one night to the sound of a gun going off at the other end of the house. And then the footsteps are coming down the hallway to my room. And I'm praying they're my mom's. And the door opens. And she just stands there in the doorway. And in the dim light, she like looks like a ghost. And she says, I think he shot himself. I said, well, I guess you better go check. And she hesitates. And then she turns and walks down the hall. And when she opens the door, I hear, you wouldn't even care if I shot myself. So the next day I walk in there and I find the bullet hole in the ceiling. So that's when I realized we had a gun in the house. And this stuff goes on. And by the time I'm a freshman, like you guys, he's having an affair with this artist. And she's really good. She does this bust of his head, but it's the 70s, so she paints it black and green. 
So while he'd disappear with our car over at her place for days at a time, it's like he was leaving his avocado head behind to keep an eye on things. <laughs> we were in an apartment at this point, and I had some fish tanks, but I wanted a really big one. And uh, he didn't want me to get it, but he wasn't around, so my mom let me buy it. And I had it sitting empty on the floor at the foot of my bed. And I wake up one night to the sound of them fighting at the other end of the apartment. And I hear him say, that damn fish tank. And then the fight starts coming down the hallway to my room. And don't you hate when that happens? And some of the kids are nodding. And I'm just filling up with dread as he comes down the hall. And the door bursts open and the light comes on and what emerges out of the darkness is burned into my brain. My tiny little mom is standing there trying to block the doorway. Her bleached blonde bouffant hairdo is just messed up. Her face is beet red. The veins in her neck are bulging because she's got her tiny little hands splayed on his massive chest trying to hold him back. And he's like six foot two, 250, and he's leaning in over her shoulder and he's pointing at me. He says, you, I told you not to buy that fish tank. And he picks up this big steel ball and his face twists in rage as he pulls back to throw as hard as he can. And I just close my eyes and I let go because I thought I was going to die. And then I didn't because he wasn't throwing it at me. He was throwing it at that empty fish tank. And when it shatters, that sound, something happens to me and I lose control of my body. Suddenly there's two of me. On the inside, there's just this silent witness observing everything that's happening. And on the outside, I am shaking violently and uncontrollably and tears are streaming out of my eyes and I'm pissed because I'm not crying and he sees this and he swoops over and he, he sits down on my bed and he leans in close and he says, oh, I love you so much. But he misunderstands my tears because my heart's full of hate and what I don't tell my students is that at that moment, I wished I had that gun because I would have killed him. I tell my students because at that moment I understand my mom's world. He disappears, he shows up, he beats her up, she cries, he tells her he loves her and he leaves again. From that point on in my life when it came to love, I was the one walking around with my tail between my legs. So I finished the story and now my class is staring at me. And I hate telling these stories because I'm right back in with them. And I look at the lesson and it just seems stupid. Everything seems stupid. And I look at them and I go, you guys are right. When are we gonna ever use this in real life? But I look over at that girl, that fragile girl, she has this smile on her face because I realize at that moment, it hurts. When you realize you're not alone, it hurts a little bit less. Well, Michael heard this story, and then there's actually one more. I tell him this story about picking pineapples. And it, the kids love it, because it takes like three days, which means they get out of math for like three days. But it's the story of how I actually learned that love is not always a lie. And I wouldn't have been able to be a teacher if I hadn't learned that. And that's the deal with my kids. At the bottom of it all, all my kids just know love is a lie. Michael gets hold of my yearbook and he says, Mr. McNeil, I know I wasn't the easiest to have, but you never gave up on me. I love you, and I'm not lying. And I got to tell Michael that he passed my class that semester. It was the only class he passed all year. And at that moment, I wished I had a superpower. I wish I had the power to make kids feel as good as he felt at that moment. And as for me, 
I get to learn that love is real every time one of my students steps up and says, for you, Mr. McNeil, I'm going to try again. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains, we gon' walk it out and move mountains. And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Andra Day behind me now, and we just heard from Eric McNeil. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>